That song was written by, by Ed himself. This evening we're going to continue our Easter series with an emphasis on the person and work of Christ and what is accomplished by his death and resurrection. On Sunday, Paul led us through the account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We saw how Jesus was in total control of the events taking place. After three years of ministry, it was time for him to reveal himself. We remember from Palm Sunday how God used his disciples when he told them, go into the village and get the colt. And as he rode that colt into Jerusalem, the people threw down their cloaks and branches and shouted, Hosanna to the highest. We are gathered here tonight to celebrate Good Friday, to celebrate paradoxically, the crucifixion of our Savior. But before we get to Good Friday, we should pick up where Paul left off and briefly recount the events between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion. We remember like a king, Jesus ascended into Jerusalem. But where did he go when he entered that holy city? Did he go to a king's palace? He entered like a king? No. He went to the temple. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 states, He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And he went there with a purpose. He was there to bring about his own trial and crucifixion. He knew that this was the appointed time. He was not being set up. He was not the victim. He was setting things up. This is important to remember as we recount the events of our Savior's scourging and crucifixion. God is sovereign. He is in control of the events. When we see the disciples, religious leaders, the Roman leaders, and the soldiers, the Passover crowds, God used all of these to accomplish his will, his sovereign will. The beginning of chapter 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith helps us to understand God's sovereignty. It reads, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. As we recount the death of Jesus on our behalf, Keep in mind that every detail was not just known, but ordained by God's sovereign will. This is both the work and person of Christ. We will see references to prophecies from the Old Testament and even some prophetic words from Christ himself. See if you can count them. 
These are proofs that it was God's sovereign will that these events take place as they did. So now, after the day of his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the city is swollen to six times its normal size, with people coming from near and far to celebrate the Passover. He goes directly to the temple, the center of all the Passover activities. This is not by chance. This is by design. Jesus ascends into Jerusalem and enters the temple. During Passover, the money changers would have been exchanging foreign coins for Jewish money, for exorbitant profits. Sacrificial animals were being sold to travelers at inflated prices because they could not bring their own. A whole economy had been set up around exploiting the worshipers at the temple during Passover. And what is the first thing Christ does when he enters the temple? In Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, we read that Jesus cleared the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and teaching all who were there. And verse 18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus uses the first few days of the week drawing attention to himself while the religious, religious leaders seek a way to destroy him. He spends time preaching and teaching in the temple. And we remember some of these teachings from the Gospel of Mark, preached from this very pulpit the last few months. Being challenged by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and then by the Pharisees and the Herodians, all of them seeking a way to trap him, to justify his destruction. We are told in the first part of verse 12 of Mark chapter 12, that after the, after the parable of the tenants, that they were seeking to arrest him. Then Jesus spends the second part of Holy Week with his disciples. In Mark 13, he teaches them about the signs of his second coming. In Mark 14, he tells us about the, Mark 14 tells us about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And on the day before his crucifixion, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city. Find the man carrying the jar, and he'll show you a large room prepared for us for our Passover meal. Just as he had intentionally prearranged the cult for his entrance into Jerusalem, Jesus prearranged this room for this Passover meal. There, he washes his disciples' feet, teaching them humble servitude, how they are to treat one another, and shares a Passover meal with them. What we know today as the Last Supper. There, he shares prophetic words about his death and speaks about a new covenant. He tells them in verse 20 of Luke chapter 22, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You guys, can, you guys can say it if you know it. This is followed by a time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And knowing what he was about to endure, 
What does he, what does he pray? Verse 36 of Mark chapter 14 tells us, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, knowing in full what he was about to endure, teaches us how to seek and surrender to God's will. Verse 44 of Luke chapter 22 tells us even more. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus knew it was coming, and he was in agony over it. Yet out of love for us, he submitted to the will of his Father. Mark 14 continues with the account of Jesus' arrest and trials before the chief priests, followed with Peter, one of his closest, denying that he ever knew him. This brings us to Friday, Good Friday. In the first part of Mark 15, we read about the delivery of Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And after the priests, the chief priest convinced Pilate to crucify Jesus, he is scourged and then mocked. And this is where we'll pick up the account of the crucifixion this evening with the reading of Mark 15, starting with verse 14. Mark 15, 14 is found on page 852 of your pew Bible. And it's in the middle of a section, 852, if you're using your pew Bible. Mark 15, starting with verse 14. And Jesus said, and Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them with a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the palace called the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Let's pray for tonight's message. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here in the dark of the night to remember the darkness that is the sin in our hearts that Jesus was crucified for. Lord, many of us have heard this account of the crucifixion many times. Tonight we ask that as we hear it again, that you would pierce our hearts yet again with your word. Open our minds to see your sovereignty at work. And most of all, Lord, with trembling at the preaching of your death on the cross, I ask that you allow only your truth to escape my mouth tonight. We say this in Christ's most holy name. Amen. In our text, we pick up the story with the religious leaders calling for Pilate to crucify Jesus. Starting with verse 14 of Mark chapter 15, and Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. This crowd was no stranger to the horrors of Roman crucifixion. In fact, this practice was especially popular in the Roman-occupied land. The historian Josephus tells us that in 4 BC, just a few years before Jesus was born, the Roman general Quintilus Varus lined the road to Galilee with 2,000 crucified Jews. This memory would not have been far from the religious leaders' minds. As they were stirring up this crowd, calling for Jesus' crucifixion, they knew exactly what they were asking for. But what did Jesus say? He is silent. This is the fulfillment of the Isaiah reading that Dennis read earlier. 
Verse 7 in the first part of 8 in Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shears, its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This was no surprise to Jesus. Just as it was prophesied in Isaiah 53, he remained silent. Continuing with verse 15 of Mark 15. So Pilate wishes to satisfy the crowd. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What is a scourging? According to Roman law, a person condemned to death by crucifixion had to be scourged beforehand. Scourging was a particularly brutal procedure. It was performed with a short whip with several leather thongs onto which small balls or sharp sheep bone fragments were tied. The person was stripped, tied to a post, then flogged from the back down to the legs by one or two soldiers. It was intended to severely weaken the victim, resulting in deep wounds, severe pain, and bleeding. And after the scourging, it was the practice of the Romans to taunt the victim. Verses 16 through 20 of Mark 15 describe just this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They called together the whole battalion. This was not just a few Roman soldiers. They clothed him with purple, a color reserved for royalty. In their mockery, they dressed him up like a king and made a makeshift crown of thorns and put that on his head. And they began to salute him in a mocking way, even as Caesar would be greeted by the words, Hail Caesar, August one. So in a mocking tone, the soldiers saluted Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they got down on their knees and pretended to worship him. And when they were mocking him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on and led him out to crucify him. Again, we could see that this was prophesied by Isaiah in verse 6 of chapter 50. I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks and to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. We see God working out his sovereign plan here. Continuing with, work, with verse 21 of Mark chapter 15. And they compelled a passerby 
Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. The scourging of Jesus was so brutal that he could not carry his cross. Here we can understand what is meant by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So the soldiers force a bystander to carry it for him. Verse 22 and 23 of Mark chapter 15. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why did Jesus refuse this drink? Wine mixed with bitter herbs or myrrh created a drink that dulled the sense of pain. The mixture of sour wine and myrrh, also known as gall, was often given to the suffering to ease their pain and death. But we see here that Jesus refused it. Despite his state, unable to carry the cross, marred beyond human semblance, he refused it. He suffered the full measure of his crucifixion without any painkillers. And we cannot overlook that the reason that his sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins is that he led a perfect, sinless life, even when tempted to deviate from God's perfect plan by dulling the pain. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul states, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. This is the theory, this is the doctrine of imputation. By having the righteousness of God imputed to us, we can be seen as sinless, just as Jesus is sinless. Psalm 103, verse 12 You'll remember this one as I start to say it. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We are still sinners, but instead of our sin, God sees the perfect life of Jesus lived in our place. It's an amazing comfort. I know it is for me, amen? Here's our application. Look at when Jesus was tempted and learn from it. When was he tempted? In the wilderness, at the beginning of his ministry, after 40 days of fasting, when he was physically weak. Now, when he is beaten, scourged, and marred beyond recognition, he is tempted again. When we are physically weak, tired, beaten down. This is often when temptation comes. Train yourself in the word. Discipline yourself 
in the practice of prayer. Look at the word disciple. Take the E off the end. Add I-N-E to the end of it. What do you have? Discipline. Learn from the word of God and how to face temptation. Continuing with verse 24 of Mark 15. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. As if the scourging wasn't enough, the mockery, the Romans would entertain themselves by casting lots for the clothes of those facing crucifixion. The scourging was a form of entertainment for them. Yet again, we see that even this is prophesied in the Old Testament. It is no surprise to our Savior, because this was foretold by David in Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Continuing with verse 25 of Mark 15, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. It was the third hour. Mark is purposeful in letting us know what time it is. What time is the third hour? 9 a.m. The Jewish day started at sunrise around 6 a.m. So it is about 9 a.m. when they crucified him. And Mark here, like with the scourging, does not describe the brutal act of crucifixion. As we heard earlier, it could be safely assumed that everyone at Mark's time understood exactly what crucifixion was. It was a means of control. It was perfected over time by the Roman Empire as they expanded, meant to send a message to anyone to not even think about rising up against Rome. The Romans would fix the arms to the crossbeam by means of iron nails driven through the wrists. The feet would be nailed to the upright post. The victim would suffer excruciating pain. It was very difficult to draw a breath unless they pushed themselves up, rubbing their scourged back against the rough cross, putting pressure on the injured nerves in the feet with the nail driven through them. Then when the pain was too much, slumping down again, they would put their full weight on the nails through their wrists, again, with the severe pain to the nerves. This process would repeat over and over until the victim grew too weary and would die from asphyxiation. Continuing with verse 26 of Mark 15. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Mark simply says the inscription read, The King of the Jews. But John's Gospel gives us a little bit more information. Verse 20 to 22 of John chapter 19 says, Many of the Jews read this inscription. 
The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. There are two things interesting here. Number one, Pilate was personally involved in what was put on the charge that appeared above Jesus. Number two, it was written in three languages so that as many people as possible could read it. And for both of these, again, we could see God's mighty hand at work. God uses unbelievers for his purpose. He caused Pilate to write that. And why the three languages? In the Old Testament, you've read the heartbreaking accounts of how God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, over and over again turned their back on God, resulting in God removing his protection over them, resulting in them being conquered by foreign nations with different languages, dispersed. And now, generations later, with the whole region being unified under the might of the Romans, these scattered people can now come back to celebrate the Passover. Verse 9 of Zechariah, chapter 10, hints at this. It reads, When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. Now, this isn't a direct prophecy related to the Jews returning to this Passover, but it does speak about the Jews coming back, being saved by Jesus. Even the sign above Jesus' head, a seemingly small detail, we could see God's mighty hand at work. Aramaic was the primary street language used by the Jews in Judea. Greek was the informal language of commerce throughout the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. And Latin, well, that was the official language of the Roman Empire. Languages by those scattered throughout the empire. Continuing with verse 27 of Mark 15. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. This is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 reads, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Mark then tells us in verses 29 through 32, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you would who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They had no idea what was happening here. Those who passed by mocked him, saying, You who destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. These were the prophetic words of Jesus. But just as they were unable to understand the Old Testament prophets, they did not understand the words of Jesus himself. They did not understand that he did not need to be saved. He was saving us. They mock him by saying, save yourself, come down from the cross. Let the king of Israel, hey, they got one right, the king of Israel. Let Christ, the king of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Listen to these words prophesied in Psalm chapter 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And Mark tells us that even those being crucified with him were reviling him. Fortunately, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that one of those that were crucified with him came to faith before he died that very day. Continuing with verse 33 of Mark 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the whole land. Noon the lightest part of the day turned dark for three hours. This was not a random solar eclipse. Those last less than 15 minutes. This was three hours. This is the work of God. God is light. The closest way we could explain this darkness is by using an analogy, but it will fall short. What happens when we stare at the sun? We can't see. We're blinded. Now imagine if you stare at the sun and died. The radiant sun in the sky is the closest closest approximation we have of God's glorious light. Think of that the next time you dare to look directly at the sun. I'm reminded of Moses' encounter with God. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God, show me your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of a rock and tells him, you can't see me, glory, lest you die. God passes by by putting his hand over the rock, and Moses can only see the back of him. And later we read in Exodus 34, 
about the shining face of Moses. Every time he talks with God, his face shines. God is light. And for three hours, he removed that light. R.C. Sprawl summarized these three hours of darkness like this. God himself plunges the world into darkness, and there is significance to that. In this atoning death, the light of the countenance of God was turned off, and the Father turned his back on his Son because of what was hanging on the cross was the most grotesque, obscene thing in human history because it contained the fullness of the pollution of our wickedness. And God is too holy as to even behold sin. And so the Father turned out the lights on the Son, which was part of the curse for sin. Continuing with verses 34 through 37 of Mark 15. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. It's the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. by our timekeeping. After being on the cross for six hours, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We cannot fully understand what Jesus was experiencing. But even in his anguish, Jesus is teaching us. Again, the prophetic words of Isaiah fulfilled. Verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53. Hear this within the context of our Christ's agonizing cry. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he poured out the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Out of anguish of his soul, Christ poured out his soul to death. What is this concept of being poured out? When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting the first part of Psalm 22, verse 1. But it's the entirety of Psalm 22 that is a picture of what Christ endured for us. Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15 expand on our understanding of being poured out unto death. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. These verses are a description of Christ's agony on the cross. And the whole chapter of Psalm 22 is full of prophecies fulfilled on the cross. Even with his last words on the cross, Jesus reminds us that he is the Messiah who fulfilled the prophetic scriptures. Elijah never came. Jesus was there for a different purpose. Continuing with verse 38 of Mark chapter 15. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is the significance of a curtain in the temple being torn in two? There's a short way of describing this and a long way. I'm going to go the long way tonight. Genesis 3 tells us when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were separated from God. And what are the wages of sin? Death. Both physical and spiritual death. Verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. In Exodus 20, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, making known his will for us. Exodus 20 tells us that they were written by the finger of God. This is the old covenant, the covenant of the law. And as Psalm 14 reminds us, not one of us can keep it. Soon after, in Exodus 25, verse 8, God said, And let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. He then gives them instructions, a curtain separating the rest of the temple from the most holy place, the place where God dwelt. Leviticus 16 tells us that only the high priest was permitted to pass beyond this curtain and only once a year to enter into God's presence with blood sacrifices for all of Israel to make atonement for their sins. But this sacrificial system was only in place to remind the people that the price for their sin is death. And verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he made the final atonement for our sins. The turn of the curtain was a statement of his eternal redemption. This is the new covenant in his blood. There is no longer a curtain separating us from the presence of God. Verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews chapter 10 explain it to us like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. No more separation from God. 
This is the work of Jesus on the cross, taking the sins of all the people for all time if they would only repent and believe. Jesus had accomplished what God promised and what the prophets had foretold for hundreds of years. And finally, Mark chapter 15, verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathes his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Amen. What are our applications from tonight? Number one, read the Old Testament. We saw numerous prophecies fulfilled, and those were just a few. The Old Testament informs us. It teaches us God's nature. And as we saw, its prophecies provide proofs of God's sovereignty. Number two, God is always teaching us. He is sovereign over the smallest details. A drink refused. A sign affixed to the cross. A curtain torn open. Ask God to show you what he wants you to learn because he's teaching us today. Even through your most insignificant details, the minor events in your life, Look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 23 and 22, 22 and 23, to see what he might be teaching you. And finally, God is sovereign. The first part of verse 10 in Isaiah 53 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yes. Jesus' crucifixion was the will of the Lord to crush him for our benefit. God is sovereign over everything. He used the faith of his disciples to accomplish his sovereign will. He used the sin of the unbelieving religious leaders and Romans to accomplish his sovereign will. But here's the question. Do you want him to use your sin to accomplish his sovereign will? Or do you want him to use your faith? There is a wage earned with each. The night before Jesus endured the cross, knowing in full what he was about to endure, he washed his disciples' feet and he shared the Passover meal with his disciples. The disciples didn't understand what he was talking about at that Last Supper. They didn't understand what would happen on the next day at the cross. They didn't understand what he meant by this is my body and my blood, a new covenant. It was not until Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. He's in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 45, their eyes are finally opened Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. They would now understand the new covenant promised by the prophet Jeremiah. A new covenant, the promise that God will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are surrendered to him. If you have not surrendered your heart to Christ, there's still a great curtain between you and God. Nothing you do outside of repenting and believing in Christ's work on the cross will save you. If the understanding of what Christ accomplished on the cross has penetrated your heart tonight, if that is you, please speak with us before you leave and join us on Easter where we will complete our message on the person and work of Christ. We will now remember this Last Supper in Holy Communion, a celebration of Christ's final atonement and what he accomplished for us on the cross, a perfect sacrifice for the eternal forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are righteous and just. You would have been fully justified in not saving a single one of us. Yet it was your will to sacrifice your son on the cross for us, just as you promised through the prophets. Father, as we take communion tonight and celebrate the new covenant, may we be ever more aware of your presence with us, accomplished and the perfect the person and work of Christ. We say this in Christ's most holy name. Amen.